Welcome to Book Banter with me, your host, Diane Burkhart. I hope you will join me every Wednesday as we explore all things to do with, well, <laughs> books. Let's get on with our show today. Hello, my happy people. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are not going to regret it because we have got a fantastic guest who is going to be joining us today and for the next two podcasts because she has so much book knowledge. I had to get as much information from her as I possibly could. Her name is Allie Alvis, and she is known throughout the internet as Book Historia. You can find her on many of the social media platforms. Be sure to look for her, and we have links to make it convenient for you in the description of today's podcast. There is so much that we have to talk about today. I'm going to get right to the interview, but I do want to tell you, be sure to stick around until the end and get your writing prompt for the writing prompt challenge. We have a great contest coming up, and we really hope that you will participate. It will be so much fun. But for right now, I want to introduce you to a fascinating person with a wealth of knowledge. If you love books like we do, you are going to adore this podcast. Please welcome Ali Alvis. Most of the interviews that I'm doing, it's with friends of mine. So the first thing I always have somebody do is explain how we know each other. Well, many, many moons ago when we both worked at Barnes & Noble in Wichita, Kansas together, it was my first sort of book-adjacent job, and I learned a lot about myself and a lot about books working at Barnes & Noble. I have to admit, it's like I have admired you since we met at Barnes & Noble, because I remember you telling me how you got your pilot's license when you were a teenager. <laughs> uh more like 20, but close, close enough. enough to a teenager. <laughs> yeah, it's it, being in Kansas, you know, you're you're sort of adjacent to that sort of thing a lot. And my dad is a pilot, so he sort of encouraged me to go for that. I got my private pilot's license sort of as a lot of casting about to see what I wanted to do with my life. When I graduated high school, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Oh, wow. And... The first college that I went to actually was for fashion merchandising at the University of, or at Indiana University. And that wasn't quite a fit for me. Uh, I, I didn't really like the merchandising. I wanted to do the design. But my first summer out of college, I started taking flight lessons just sort of as a, a thing to do. I had a part time job at the airport and I got a discounted rate, so might as well. <laughs> And it was really fun. So I explored doing that for a career, but that didn't really pan out. And that's when I ended up at Barnes & Noble. And then you actually did a lot of work in information technology, didn't you? Yeah, I did some. I, I've done some web design. My dad owns a company that does a lot of sort of communications technology. So I've run robots that put chips on computer boards and oh, things nice. like that. I have... A very diverse background <laughs> yeah. of experiences. So how do you go from a pilot to computer technology to being a special collections librarian? <laughs> I know, yeah, the path is, is kind of winding. <laughs> I actually first got put on it at Barnes & Noble when I was stocking some shelves and I came across the linguistics section 
which was a field that I had never really heard of or had any experience with. But it was a topic that I had always sort of gravitated to unconsciously. I was interested in why we talk the way we do, why we write the way we do, why we capitalize the letter I in sentences. And no teachers had ever really been able to tell me that in school. But by reading books about linguistics, I got to learn about all that sort of stuff. And I sort of adopted that section at Barnes & Noble (laughs) as my little pet project. And I bought a lot of books out of it. So when it came time for me to go back to college, I changed my major to linguistics. And I, I graduated with that as my bachelor's degree with a focus on the historical development of the English language. So that was really what set me on the path to old books. That was at the University of Kansas, right? Yes, yeah. But then you kind of took a different turn with your master's degrees. Yeah. When I graduated with my linguistics degree, I thought, I don't really know what I want to do with this. Do I want to get a master's in it? Do I want to do field work? I started looking at master's in publishing, and I applied to several schools in that. But sort of as uh, an experiment, I also applied to the University of Edinburgh for their material culture and the history of the book program, which was very different from publishing. But I thought it sounded really interesting. It really aligned with my interests. I'd always had a soft spot for quote unquote old stuff. (laughs) So I applied for that and I got in. (laughs) Yeah, that whenever I was reading this on your resume, I didn't even know that's where you had gotten your degree. That was something that I'm very, very jealous of. That has got to have been a fantastic experience. It really was. And it's funny, I I was talking to someone recently, and I told them that at the time that I got into that degree, and when I was getting settled in at Edinburgh, I had never been in a special collections reading room before. That degree was really my introduction to the whole world of rare books. Uh, And it was really one of those occurrences that you hear about sometimes where I walked into the reading room, I saw a rare book, uh, in this case, an illuminated manuscript, and it just felt like all of the puzzle pieces fell into place. (laughs) (laughs) And for people who don't know, can you explain what an illuminated manuscript is? Yeah, so um, generally when you're thinking of like a beautiful medieval book with all of those colors, um, you, you tend to think of the books that are copied by hand by monks in a monastery. That is an illuminated manuscript. A manuscript is different from a printed book in that a manuscript is written by hand. And the clue is really in the word uh, manuscriptus. It comes from literally handwritten. So when I'm talking about medieval manuscripts or manuscripts in general, that always refers to something that somebody wrote out by hand. Wow, that is so cool. I just learned something new. I had no idea that's actually what the (laughs) word meant. I mean, I knew what a manuscript was, but I didn't know that's what it literally meant. I know, yeah. When you look at it in the Latin roots, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, this is literally (laughs) what it says on the tin. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you didn't stop with your degree from the University of Edinburgh. You went on and got more education. Um, (laughs) So at the time, uh, that degree was not accredited by SILIP, which is the UK equivalent of the ALA. So technically, I would not have been able to get a librarian job having just graduated from Edinburgh. 
So I applied for a second master's at the University of Glasgow in information management and digital preservation. And that was CLIP accredited. Of course, I think two months after I started that degree, they retroactively accredited the Edinburgh program. (laughs) But that's fine because Glasgow was also an incredible experience, very different from the experience at Edinburgh. In Both of them were incredible in really different ways. Both universities have just spectacular special collections, uh, wonderful holdings of manuscripts and really cool book bindings and just the depth of their collections is extraordinary. And being able to experience my master's degrees, learning about this stuff while actually in the presence of the stuff mm-hmm. is it's a really valuable experience. Is that where you fell in love with foraging? <laughs> no, no forage painting. It was, um, yeah, it was so sort of weird. I'm trying to think of the first time I saw a forage painting. The, For those who don't know, what is foraging? <laughs> so foraged painting, uh, I think you're referring to the uh, art of hidden foreedges. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foredge on a book, it's like if you're if you look at your bookshelf on your wall or. Uh, next to you at your computer, you're seeing a bunch of spines facing out. So the spine is the back of the book. The foredge is opposite to the spine. It's that long edge where all of the pages are. If you turn your book around from the spine, you have the book block or the text block, which is the chunk of pages. It's it's that, you know, stack of paper where all the text is. Mm-hmm. And there is the head of the text block, the foredge of the text block, and the foot of the text block. So when I'm talking about the foredge, I'm talking about that long end of the pages. And hidden foredge painting is an art that arose from people's desires to make books look as cool as humanly possible. <laughs> And it is done by fanning out that foredge. So that way it kind of looks like a wedge. And then you can paint on that edge. And when you close the book, after the paint is dry, of course, (laughs) and sort of unfan those edges, you can't really see that painting as well. You can only see it when you re-fan the edge. And so it's this really cool sort of bibliographic magic trick. And this started being done in the late, late, late 18th century. It really caught on in the 19th century. People have been decorating the edges of books since time immemorial with guilt and painting and all sorts of things. But this this hidden aspect really caught on in the 19th century. Yeah, I've seen some of them that you had presented on videos, and some of them are very elaborate. I mean, I I knew that they existed, but I had never seen them. They were just fantastic. Yeah, they're really incredible. And people are still making them. There's actually a TikTok account of a young woman who does incredibly detailed forage paintings. I can't remember her at, but it's, it's really amazing. And people tend to refer to it as this lost art that nobody does anymore. And there are quite a few people out there that still make hidden forage paintings. I mean, they're cool. (laughs) It's one of those things that like, why would you lose this art? It's it's amazing. And and people want to pay big money for it. So yeah. What was the most 
memorable book that you got to work with when you were at the universities, either Edinburgh or Glasgow? Hmm. I think two. So at the University of Edinburgh, the the first book that I saw, that illuminated manuscript, um, I think it was MS2. I think that's the shelf mark. Um, but it's this three-volume Bible Historial, which is a, a decorated manuscript Bible, and it's very large. It was originally bound in one volume, I believe, but it had been rebound into three more manageable volumes because as one big fat book, it was just very difficult to deal with. And seeing that book, it's so funny. I still have my notes from my class that day. And on the top of them, I scribbled rebinding illuminated manuscripts, question (laughs) mark. And I ended up writing my master's thesis on that because I just thought it was so fascinating, the idea of making these old manuscripts usable while respecting their material history Mm -hmm. and their form and function. Rebinding has always been a fraught practice in the history of books. Some binders would cut off the edges of manuscripts and printed books with no regard for any marginal notes that people of the past had added or any decorations, because obviously the text was the most important part of the book. And now, uh, understanding what we do about the history of the book and history in general and how people interact with objects, we really want that marginal stuff. Mm -hmm. We want that evidence of use and how people are cross-referencing things. So we look back at at bookbinders of the past and go, oh, shoot, if only they hadn't done this. But, you know, how did we get to that point? Why do we bind books the way we do today? And, and that was really what triggered my research interest into the binders Douglas Cockrell and Son, who were English bookbinders working in um, sort of the late, late, late 19th century up through the 1980s. And didn't um, you even go on to write an article about bookmarks, about the, the information in the margins? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I've written, I think, a few things about that, and I've spoken about it. There's just really an endless amount of information to be found in the marks people make in books from, you know, just underlining things like we do today, Mm -hmm. the equivalent of putting those little sticky flags in the margins, (laughs) uh, which in the past was drawing a little pointing finger to the passage you found most interesting. Those little fingers are called manicules, uh, which, again, it's one of those those fun Latin words that it's like, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Mani coming from manu in the same way that manuscript is hand. Mm-hmm. So manicule is little hand. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cool. I'm loving all the stuff that I'm learning from you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that when you are... I don't know that I would call myself a generalist per se, but I have more research interests than you can shake a stick at. Mm -hmm. So I can go off on tangents all day. (laughs) See, and that's why I like you. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's so much fun. I mean, I I honestly could talk to you all day. Now, (laughs) what about from the University of Glasgow? Is there a particular manuscript there that you remember? 
Yes. Um, so there I was writing, again, about uh, Douglas Cockrell and Son and their work on rebinding of various books for the University of Glasgow. They did a lot of work for Scottish universities, and they were also very active in training new bookbinders. So I was tracing their their sort of lineage of teaching. There's one particular bookbinder, book conservator, book historian uh, named Nicholas Pickwode, who is just really a titan of the field. And he comes from the Douglas Cockrell and Son bookbinding book conservation tradition. And he rebound a book called The Hunterian Psalter, which is one of the most incredible books that I've ever seen. It's at the University of Glasgow, and it is a real treasure. It's from the 1200s, and the way that Nicholas Pickwood rebound it is beautiful. It's in this gorgeous white pigskin. He really tried to emulate the original binding structures and the thing about modern rebinding and conservation rebinding is an effort to not sort of talk over the book you're trying to be sensitive to the content you're not trying to say like oh look at this gorgeous binding (laughs) you really want the book to be able to stand on its own and for the binding to just work as a support. Mm-hmm. And so this finding by Nicholas Pickwode is tremendous for that reason. But because this manuscript is so precious, it's a restricted item. And it's, it's rare to find really restricted items in special collections these days. The point of special collections is to provide access to all of these cultural treasures. And so having having some things held back because they're they're fragile or you know they've been digitized or whatever that that's not really the point of special collections but still some real treasures like the hunterian psalter you have to get special dispensation to look at them because they're like the treasure of that region of the world or of that university so when they wheeled out the Hunterian Psalter, like it was in its own locked box, oh wow, which is stored within the locked vault, and it it was it was kind of a lot of pomp and circumstance, <laughs> and it was really fun, and it just it sort of drove home the importance of what I was looking at, and it was just it was really neat, and it's a beautiful book, even aside from the binding. That is just incredible. I can't even imagine getting to work with something like that. I mean, that has to be a fantastic memory for you. Yeah, it really is. And it was so funny. Uh, A lot of the staff in the reading room and even a couple of the readers were like, what is happening (laughs) over there? (laughs) When they wheeled out the special box and everything, because it's just it's unusual. It's people work with incredible things every day in special collections. So it was fun and really uh, an incredible experience. So what was your thesis on at the University of Glasgow? This was on um, specifically the work of Douglas Cockrell and Son for uh, the University of Glasgow Special Collections and just sort of dealing with how that relationship was established, the variety of things that they rebound, and also tracing the history of their practice through their conservation work, which was really fascinating. I got to see some really cool books and even books that they were in conversation to conserve but didn't for various reasons and i I thought that was fascinating this sort of book that was not 
but I, I recently published that in Suave Mechanicals Volume 7, which is an ongoing series about the practice and history and science of bookbinding. You know, while I'm sitting here listening to this and the things that you've done, I have to admit, I always knew I was a book nerd, but I am even surprised at the level of fangirling that I'm doing over here, <laughs> hearing about the books that you've gotten to work know, with. Yeah, it's, yeah, the world of book history is something that a lot of people take for granted because, you know, a book is a book. It's the thing on the shelf. It has pages. It has covers. You can go to the store and buy one anytime you want, and it's full of text, and you read it, and the end. But, you know, why does a book look like that? Why does it have two covers? Why is it that size? Why is it made of paper and not something else? Why is the text oriented on the page the way it is? Why do we have paragraph breaks? Like, all of these things you can learn through studying the history of the book. And it's funny, I don't really consider myself a reader. I, I don't read a lot of fiction, I read a lot of books about book history because I'm a nerd, and <laughs> I, I read a lot of books about sort of object histories and the history of the significance of diamonds in the world, or wood, or the fingers, or like these these weird little niche things that people don't really pay attention to in in favor of of large sweeping historical narratives about events and things. But looking at these individual objects, you can also understand the sweeping narrative of history in a much more intimate way. You really get a sense of the individuals living through these times and what they were doing and how they were writing and, and sort of experiencing the world around them. Um, and that's, that's something that I really love about looking at books through this really critical historical lens. I think this is a good place to end the interview for right now. Don't forget to check back with us next Wednesday when we continue talking with Allie Alvis about how she went from grad school to getting her first job at the Smithsonian. Can you imagine that? Going straight from college to working for the Smithsonian? Talk about a dream job. And to close out this show, just really quickly, I'm going to tell you about our writing prompt challenge. We've been adding some writing prompts on our website, BurkhartBooks.com. The point of this is just to try to get a little bit more interactive with our audience. So for this challenge, we're giving you different prompts every week. You can go onto our website and find the writing prompt challenge page and choose any prompt. It doesn't have to be the one from this week. Whenever you submit your story, it should be typed, double spaced, and at least 12 point font or even a little bit bigger because I'm old. It's hard to read small print. And it should be in a doc, a text, or a PDF format. By submitting a story, you're agreeing to give us the rights to share your work on our website and possibly even to read it aloud on another Book Banter with Diane Burkhart podcast. You retain all of the rights. We just get the right to share it with people. So check out the links in our podcast description and you will find a listing for the writing prompts challenge and go there and check out the prompts. And if you would like to even submit a prompt that you think people would enjoy writing off of, let us know. Just send us an email to contact at BurkhartBooks.com and we would love to hear from all of you. And now it is that time again for all of you to go forth and be happy.